Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving home. Go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. The markets ended another down week on a down note, although we didn't close on the lows of the day. There was a bit of a rally in the last hour, but I don't think it turned the technical picture at all. I think we look very weak going into next week. Looking at the size of the declines this week, the Dow dropped 4.1%, and the Dow is now 16.6% below its record high. Now, The low it got in this bear market was just down 20% before we had that big bear market correction. The S&P 500 was down 4.8% on the week, so a bigger decline. And that index is now down 19.6%, so almost back in that 20% official bear market territory. But I think it's still a bear market, even though the rally in that bear market temporarily lifted it from being down less than 20%, I think by next week, it'll be down more than 20%. We still haven't taken out the June lows. I think that's something that we could do as early as next week. The Russell 2000 also down a 4.5% on the week, but it is solidly in bear market territory, down 27% from its peak. The NASDAQ had an even worse week, down 5.8%, and it's 29% lower than its record high. The Kathy Wood ARC Innovation ETF actually held up a little better than I would have suspected this week, down just 4.5%. But that index is down 73% from its highs. And in my opinion, it still has a long way to go down. I expect at least a 90% decline minimum in the ARC Innovation ETF before it ultimately bottoms out. I always talk about the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust when I talk about ARC. They're very highly correlated, being highly speculative. That trust was down 10.9% on the week. 
In fact, it closed the week at about a 34% discount to its net asset value. That's about a big a discount as it's had. And I think technically that fund is looking horrible going into next week. And we might see a major blowout in the discount to NAV. And that could portend a much bigger drop in Bitcoin itself. As I'm recording this podcast on Friday afternoon, Bitcoin is back below 20,000. It's trading at about 19,700, well below the about 22,500 or so that it was at when I did my last podcast a few days ago. And I talked about that head fake rally because Bankman Freed was making an investment in Scaramucci Skybridge and everybody piled into Bitcoin. And I said on the podcast that that was a selling opportunity. It was a sucker rally and the entire rally has already reversed and the suckers have big losses. And in fact, it wasn't just Bitcoin that the suckers were buying into. The entire bear market rally in stocks was a sucker's rally. A lot of people believed that the market had bottomed, that the bear market was already over. I kept saying that it was just getting started. This is not your typical secular bear market that hangs around for a few months, maybe a year. This is a secular bear market that's going to be here for the entire decade, maybe more. Now, eventually, we may start going up in nominal terms, but not in real terms, because inflation is going to eviscerate the value of U.S. stocks. But I expected all along the U.S. stock market to roll over and ultimately make new lows. And the reason I knew it was going to go down wasn't just that I knew the market was overvalued, which it was, but I knew that inflation was going to keep surprising to the upside. And that's exactly what happened. And I also knew that the economy was going to keep surprising on the weak side, which, of course, that continues to happen. Now, I didn't get everything right. I thought gold prices would go up and gold prices have come down. But I wasn't 100 percent convinced. I knew it wasn't a sure thing because I understood that in the short run, investors are not reacting properly to the news that I knew was coming. I knew we were getting higher inflation. I knew we were getting weaker growth, but most people didn't know that. But what's still happening is every time investors are surprised with a hotter than expected inflation number, that makes them feel that the Fed is now going to have to fight harder to bring inflation back down to 2%. Nobody doubts the Fed's resolve or its ability to bring inflation back down to 2%. So the higher inflation goes, the harder everybody expects the Fed to fight to win, and that keeps propping up the dollar, and that keeps suppressing gold. I have no idea when investors will figure out that that's wrong, that higher inflation just means the Fed is losing its fight. And even if it fights harder, it's still going to lose because it's not fighting hard enough because it can't. Even if we get a 100 basis point rate hike next week and the rate is up to three and a quarter percent, inflation is eight and a quarter. That's negative five percent real interest rates. In what universe can you fight inflation with negative 5% real rates? You can't. It is impossible. Think about it. The way the Federal Reserve can fight inflation by raising interest rates is by changing people's consumption and savings patterns. What the Fed wants is to discourage people from spending, reduce demand, and encourage people to save. And of course, when you have more savings, you get more capital investment, 
and that means you have greater supply. And so that's how higher interest rates can both reduce demand and increase supply, and that fights inflation. But if interest rates are negative 5%, you're not encouraging anybody to save. In fact, you're still punishing people to save because they're going to lose 5% of their savings every year due to inflation. And in fact, you're encouraging people to go out and borrow even more money because they can borrow money and have their debts wiped out through inflation. And so inflation is going to keep getting worse as long as the Federal Reserve is still slow to hike rates. In fact, they get further behind the curve every time they hike. They have made no headway. And I knew this was going to happen. What I don't know is when the markets are going to wake up. But ultimately, I think when the rate hikes do enough damage to the economy, because they will do that, the Fed won't succeed in killing inflation, but it will kill the economy. And that's because it's a bubble. The entire economy is based on artificially low interest rates. I was listening to this interview on CNBC with Nassim Talib, and he's one of the other guys out there that gets it. He wrote the book on the black swan and CNBC is interviewing him. And whoever was interviewing him asked if he saw any black swans looming on the horizon. And he basically laughed and said, what do you mean black swans? These are white swans, which of course they are. He said, if you have free money for a decade, and it's more like 14 years of free money, but if you have free money for that amount of time, and now the free money goes away, that's an obvious disaster. That's not a black swan. A black swan is something that you really can't predict and that just comes along out of the blue. What's about to happen is so obvious that anybody should be able to predict it. What's so amazing is that so many people could miss something so obvious. If the Federal Reserve spent 12 years, 14 years creating an economy built on a foundation of basically free money, what happened during that 12, 14-year time period when money was free? How many misallocations of resources? How many malinvestments? How many bubbles were inflated? How much did we overconsume and underinvest? How much excess debt was piled up during that period? Now that the Fed has to remove all of those supports that the economy was resting on top of, everything that was built on those supports has to come crashing down. It's not like the economy can just levitate in midair when you pull out the supports. It has to implode. So there is no way to normalize interest rates after more than a decade of abnormally low interest rates and not let everything come toppling down. And that was the point Nassim Tlaib was trying to make. This is going to be a disaster. All of a sudden, this is a new world where you have a positive interest rates. or not even positive yet, Maybe we're going there, but there is a cost of capital. You have a discount right now. This impacts everything, and this is changing the world. And he pointed out that a lot of the people who are managing money have no idea what it's like to manage money with a normal interest rate, let alone high interest rates, because ultimately, that's where we're headed. We're not just headed for normal interest rates. You don't go from over a decade of artificially low interest rates to normal interest rates. Pendulums don't swing that way. They don't go all the way to one side and then just stop in the middle. We're going to swing all the way to the other side. So we're going to go from very low interest rates to very high interest rates. Now, how long it's going to take to get there, I don't know, but that is where we're headed. And if you think about it from a fundamental perspective, we deserve high interest rates because interest is the price you pay to borrow money. 
but prices are determined by supply and demand when the Federal Reserve is not artificially influencing it. But eventually, supply and demand overwhelms the Fed, and we're going to have a rate of interest that reflects the actual balances in the economy between savings and borrowing. But if you have an economy where you have a lot of savings and not too much borrowing, then you can naturally have low interest rates because you have a lot of supply, lots of savings, and not too much demand. Not that many people want to borrow. But the U.S. economy is the opposite of that. Nobody wants to save, and everybody is trying to borrow. So we have hardly any supply. We've got lots of demand. So the price to borrow should be higher. And of course, the more debt you have, the riskier you are as a borrower, which means lenders have to charge a higher premium, especially for the U.S. government, which is loaded up with debt. It's a much risky borrower now than it's ever been, yet it's gotten away with extremely low interest rates. But it's not going to get away with them much longer. In fact, if you look at the yield curve this week, yields again rose across the board, not as much on the long end again as the short end, but the yield on a one-year treasury bill momentarily today touched 4%. Now, it closed at 3.93, but that's almost 4%. But a year ago, I think the 12-month treasury bill rate was about 25 basis points, something like that. And now it's 400 basis points. So when all this treasury debt matures, all these short-term one-year T-bills that are loaded up on the treasury's balance sheet, as they mature, they have to roll them over. And now they're paying 400 basis points instead of 25 basis points. That is a huge increase in the interest cost of servicing the national debt. By the way, the yield on the two-year settled at 3.87, the five-year 3.63, and the 10-year 3.45. So we're inverted all the way, in fact, from the six-month, which is 3.79. So we're inverted from the six-month all the way to the 10-year. We have a slight blip up for the 30-year, but barely. You move from 3.45 on the 10-year to 3.51 on the 30-year. Again, the reason that these yields are so low is because everybody still believes that the Fed is going to get inflation back down to 2% very quickly. It's just going to work a little harder to achieve that goal, but everybody believes they're going to get there, and that's why bond yields are so low. In fact, a lot of people now are touting bonds because they say they're great investments because they now have a good yield. In fact, Jeff Gunlock was out talking about why now it's a great time to buy bonds and they're a good deal relative to stocks. Of course, he is the bond king. So a lot of people may dismiss bullish comments that he makes about bonds because after all, he's just talking his book. But I think that he actually believes that. I don't think he's just saying that. I've heard in the past Gunlock being bearish on bonds despite being a bond manager. So I think he actually believes this, but I think he's wrong. I don't think bonds are a good buy. In fact, CNBC for the last few days has been touting bonds, which in and of itself is a sell signal for bonds. Hopefully this is the last time you hear this ad because with Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts. Or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. 
Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. That's chime.com slash goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They've been trying to get people to buy bonds because apparently now they're a good deal because you can get a yield of three or four percent. That's not a good deal. In fact, bonds are a worse investment now than they were a year or two ago because the yields have gone up, but they're nominal yields. The real yields have gone down. I just mentioned that a yield on a 12-month treasury is four percent, but inflation is eight and a quarter. That's negative four and a quarter. When yields were 25 basis points, Everybody still thought inflation was less than 2% or a couple of years ago anyway. So if inflation is 2% and you're getting 25 basis points, you're only losing one and three quarters. Now you're losing four and a quarter. People are losing more money now on bonds than they were back then. Now, if you're making a big bet that the Fed's going to succeed and inflation is going to go all the way back down to 2%, well, maybe you can make a little money in bonds. But what if the Fed doesn't succeed? What if they fail? I think it's far more likely that they do fail. And I think there's a lot more risk in bonds than in stocks. Now, of course, certain stocks are going to be even riskier than bonds, really high multiple stocks. And in fact, there's a lot of stocks that are going to go bankrupt. A lot of household names are going to go bankrupt because a lot of household name companies still lose money. They operate in the red. Now, that wasn't a problem when money was free and they can issue stock and they could take the proceeds from selling stock and use that to pay their workers or pay their rent or other operating expenses. But those days are coming to an end. And so a lot of these companies that never should have come into existence will no longer be in existence. They are going to go bankrupt and their shareholders are going to lose everything. One of the most important things you can do for your family is to protect them with life insurance. But unfortunately, a lot of people make the mistake of buying whole life policies when what they really need is term. And the reason they usually do that is because an insurance salesman talks them into it because of the cash value that builds up in the policy. But in reality, you can build up much more cash value if you buy term life insurance, which costs a lot less and provides a much bigger death benefit in case something happens to you, but leaves you with a lot of extra cash that you can invest on your own that will likely generate far better returns than what's available inside a whole life policy. That's where ladder comes 
comes in. Ladder is 100% digital when you apply for up to $3 million in coverage or less. There's no doctors, no needles, and no paperwork. To apply, you just need a phone, a laptop, and a few spare minutes. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you've been approved. There are no hidden fees, and you can cancel any time. And if you change your mind the first 30 days, you'll get a full refund. Ladder's policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. And since life insurance costs more as you get older, there's no better time than now to cross that off your list. So go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash gold to see if you're instantly approved. One of the catalysts for the drop in the stock market today was Federal Express. Federal Express dropped the bombshell on the markets before they opened based on its pre-announcement of lower than expected earnings and layoffs. They're going to lay off 10% of their workforce, which is a lot of people. FedEx was down 21.4% by the close. I think the low was down about 23%. This stock had a 52-week high of 266.79, and it closed at 161.02. So that's a 40% decline from the high, the biggest one-day decline in 40 years. And if you remember, FedEx was one of the darlings of the COVID era. It was one of the stay-at-home stocks because a lot of people were staying at home and shopping, but they were shopping online. And one of the reasons they were shopping so much is because they were getting stimulus checks that in many cases were two to three times as large as their paychecks. And some of these people who were staying at home weren't paying their rents. A lot of them weren't paying interest or principal on their student loans. And so they had a lot more money to spend. And so they bought a lot more stuff. And so Federal Express shipped a lot more stuff. And so people were buying into FedEx as if we were always going to be locked down. And the online shopping spree was going to continue indefinitely. But of course, it didn't, especially because all the money they printed so those stimulus checks wouldn't bounce caused inflation. And because inflation caused prices to rise so much, that put a damper on the shopping spree. That's why all of these stay-at-home stocks are getting killed. And I think FedEx still has a ways to fall. In fact, if you look at that chart, it could drop down to about 100 and just get back to the COVID 2020 lows. Now, I'm sure a lot of people were very shocked to see this 21% drop overnight because a lot of people look at FedEx as some kind of blue chip stock and they buy it because they don't think they're exposed to that kind of risk. Well, there's a lot more risk out there than people think, including more risk for Federal Express. If you think about how the current economy is impacting Federal Express, first of all, the cost of shipping is going way up. Their fuel costs are higher, their labor costs are higher. So that's impacting profitability. But at the same time, package volume is shrinking and it's gonna shrink a lot more because even though consumers are spending more, they're not buying more, they're just paying more. Prices have gone way up. So when people spend money, they're spending more money to buy stuff, but they're buying less stuff. They're paying more, but they're buying less. And if they're buying less, then the volume goes down. And so there's not as many packages for FedEx to deliver. So their deliveries are going down, but the cost of the deliveries they do make are going up. Their profits are getting squeezed. And of course, they're also responding by laying off workers. And that's another prediction that I've been making about inflation. I've been saying that not only is inflation going to push up prices, but it's going to hurt the economy because it's going to cause a reduction in real economic activity and it's going to cause layoffs. 
and layoffs are coming as real spending is going down. And that's when the Fed ultimately is going to pivot. Once the economy really starts to buckle, the Fed is going to turn. I'm confident that the only reason Powell is talking so tough on fighting inflation is that he's still delusional enough to believe that he can do it without destroying the economy. Is he willing to put the economy in a mild recession where unemployment tweaks up a little bit? Sure, why not? That would be getting out of Dodge with barely a scratch. So yes, he's willing to do that. But is he willing to create a worse financial crisis than 2008? Is he willing to put the economy in the equivalent of a depression, a great recession worse than the one we had in 2008? Of course not. He has zero tolerance for that, but he doesn't expect that. And neither does anybody else. You know, it's amazing. Every time I hear somebody talking about the U.S. economy going into recession, conceding that we'll probably go into a recession, ignoring the fact that we're already in one. We've already had two quarters of negative GDP. So technically we're in a recession, but some people are ignoring that and they think, well, we're probably gonna have a recession. But everybody says with a high degree of confidence, by the way, that the recession is going to be short and shallow. How do they know that? And why should it be short and shallow? The bust needs to be proportionate to the boom. We've never had a boom this big. We've never had interest rates this low for this long. We never had an economy more screwed up than the one we have right now. We've never had bigger asset bubbles, bigger debt bubbles, more misallocations of capital and resources. So we have more mistakes that we need to fix now than ever before. So how are we going to do that with a short, shallow recession? We're not. It's going to be a massive recession. And again, the Fed has no stomach for that. And that's why the Fed is going to pivot. But the problem is when they do pivot, it's not going to be like the pivot from 2020 because they're going to be pivoting when inflation is still well above 2%. It'll probably still be well above 4% or 5% or 6% wherever. We're still going to have very high inflation. And again, that's why all these people who are buying the long end of the curve on the bond market, like the Jeff Gunlocks, the reason they're doing that is because they're betting on a pivot. Well, they're right. We're going to get a pivot, but they're going to lose their wagers because when the Fed pivots, the long end of the bond curve is going to get killed. And the reason is that right now the long end is being supported by the perception that the Fed is going to succeed in reducing inflation back down below 2%. But if they have to pivot when inflation is well above 2%, and then they have to go back to highly inflationary monetary policy, more money printing, more QE, slashing interest rates, inflation is going to take off and that's going to kill the bond market. Bonds are going to get obliterated when the Fed pivots. Maybe not the immediate reaction, maybe the knee-jerk reaction could be a rally, but that rally will be very short-lived. And by the way, in this week, the Fed's balance sheet expanded by $10.4 billion. We're still looking at an $8.833 trillion balance sheet. The balance sheet has barely shrunk. They're selling. Yes, it's down slightly from where it was, but look at how much rates have moved up based on this tiny reduction in the Fed's balance sheet. Imagine how much more rates would move up because how much lower bond prices would fall if the Fed actually started unloading a larger quantity of bonds on the market. And by the way, I don't even think they're selling treasuries yet. I think they're doing mortgage-backed securities. So eventually they have to start selling U.S. treasuries, which is going to put even more downward pressure than there is right now. And also, by the way, the Atlanta Fed came out yesterday 
and did exactly what I've been predicting they would do, lower again their estimate for Q3 GDP. The last estimate was 1.3%, and now they've lowered it all the way down to 0.5%. Back in August, that estimate was above 2.5%. So they've already gone from over 2.5% to now just 0.5%. How much longer before that 0.5% turns into a negative number? Now, I want to circle back, though, and get back to talking about the markets because I kind of glossed over the decline in the gold market. I don't want people to think, ah, Peter Schiff, he doesn't want to talk about gold when it's down. And believe me, I do want to talk about it when it's down. In fact, I'd rather talk about it when it's down because that's a better opportunity for the people who are listening to my podcast to buy. And gold was down on the week. In fact, it closed below 1700 on Friday. It finished the week at $1,675.90, but it did close out the week on a positive note. It was up a little over $10, $10.60 on the day. But on the week, gold did drop about 2.5%, and probably a lot of people think it's below support, closing the week below 1700 and maybe it still has a long way to fall. I doubt it. I think we are stopping out some of the weaker players, but I still believe the downside risk in gold is minimal. And we had some indications of that by looking at some of the other markets. Silver, for example, finished out the week very strong. It was up 43 cents today, closing the week at $19.59. And in fact, silver was one of the only things that was positive on the week. It gained almost 4%, 3.9% to be exact. So I think strength in silver is a bit of a silver lining in this cloud, and it could indicate that we are near a bottom in gold and that we are exhausting the sellers. In fact, many of the gold and silver mining companies finished a down week on an up note. One of the standouts was Newmont Mining, which finished the day up 3%. The GDX, which is the index of senior producers, rose 1.1% on the day, though it was down 4.4% on the week. The GDXJ, which are the juniors, it had a narrow loss on the day, down about one-tenth of 1%, but it fell 5.9% on the week. But even though some of the juniors got beaten up pretty good this week, overall, a lot of the gold stocks held up pretty well, especially in relation to the tech stocks, and in the face of what a lot of people might have regarded as a technical breakdown in the metal itself. So I think that we are banging along the bottom and we may not be on the exact bottom. In fact, even though gold itself made a new 52-week low today, gold stocks did not. They have not made a new low. And silver, of course, had a nice reversal. And so there are things to hang your hat on if you're a bull as far as being near the bottom. But again, even if we're not at the bottom, we're close enough to it that people should be buying the dip both in the metal and in the miners. But in contrast to gold, I think we're nowhere near a bottom in stocks. Again, I think a major decline is coming. Once again, we're poised for another potential Black Monday. Now, I know, of course, the odds of any given Monday being a Black Monday are pretty slim. But eventually, one of these Mondays is going to be another Black Monday because the fundamentals are much worse now than they were the Friday before the Black Monday we had in 1987. Plus, given how weak the stock market was this week, 
and that sucker rally during the last hour, which typically results in some false optimism going into the weekend. And that could be pulled out from under everybody starting as early as Sunday night, but potentially Monday morning. And I think more significant than the stock market is a potential crash coming in the bond market, especially since there's a lot of people who have been so bullish on bonds recently. That's typically a good sign that a major decline is on the way because long bonds are still ridiculously low given how high inflation is and how persistent inflation is going to be. And so if we do get some type of aha moment in the bond market and we do get a big drop in the long end of the bond market, that could be a catalyst to take out new lows in the stock market. And once the stock market makes new lows, it's a long way down. And remember, when I talk about these Black Monday possibilities, the crash in 1987 was precipitated by a big drop in the bond market. It was rising interest rates that were a major catalyst for the 1987 stock market crash. And of course, that stock market crash is what gave way to the Greenspan era because Alan Greenspan was brand new at the Fed in 87. And when he was new on the job, he was immediately confronted with a stock market crash. And what did the Fed do? They flooded the market with liquidity. The Fed saved the market after the 87 crash and also put in a bottom in the bond market because when stocks tanked on that Monday, bonds went the other way because bonds were really cheap in 1987. Yields were over 9%. We had positive real interest rates in 1987 when the stock market crashed, not negative real interest rates like we have now. But the problem is the Fed can't react to a stock market crash now the way Greenspan did then because we now have so much more debt than we had then and we have so much more inflation. But of course, I think if we do get a stock market crash, that will scare the hell out of Jerome Powell. It will also scare the hell out of a lot of politicians, especially the ones that are up for re-election. So if we do get a major stock market crash, that will be the catalyst for a pivot which means when the stock market crashes, so too will the dollar. And instead of dropping through the floor, gold's going to go through the roof. Of course, if we do get a bond market crash, that has implications well beyond the stock market. In particular, the housing market is going to be highly affected by a crash in the bond market because that will send mortgage rates soaring. And by the way, this week, the yield on a 30-year mortgage rose above 6%. For the first time since 2008, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage rate is now 6.1%. Now compare that to the low in 2020 during the COVID lockdowns, you could get a 30-year fixed rate mortgage for 3.1%. Think about the impact that has on the cost of buying a home, especially when you factor in the appreciation because real estate prices in the last two years are up about 30%. The medium price now for a single-family home is about $440,000. Two years ago, you could buy the same house for $340,000, except two years ago, when you bought that house, you could borrow the money at 3.1%, and now you have to pay 6.1%. I actually did the numbers to show the difference. So if somebody bought a house for $340,000, 
and put 5% down, which by the way, 5% is now the average down payment for a 30-year fixed rate loan. When I grew up, it was 20%. In fact, it was 20% for most of the history of a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Why did people have to put 20% down to buy a house? Well, because that way they had skin in the game. Because when you're lending somebody money to buy a house, you want to make sure they repay the loan. And one way to make sure is to require a big down payment. Because that way, if real estate prices drop a little bit, they're going to continue to make payments because they've got equity in the house to protect. But if the down payment is only 5% and real estate prices drop 10%, which is not that hard to do, the homeowner has negative equity and therefore has very little incentive to keep making mortgage payments on a house for which he has no equity. If he put 20% down, he would be much more incentivized to make those payments. Plus, just the cost to sell a home can eat up the 5% down payment. I think the typical commission for a realtor to sell your house is 5%. So if you only put 5% down, the minute you buy the house, you have no equity. But apart from having skin in the game, another reason to require a down payment is that it shows that the person buying the home is responsible enough to save money. And so by requiring a large down payment, you had a better pool of borrowers because they had been able to save money. Because the reason that's so important is because home ownership is so expensive. You have to have savings when you're a homeowner because a lot of stuff goes wrong when you own a home. And so you might have to come up with a lot of money to pay for things that go wrong. What if you need a new roof? Those are expensive. And a lot of things can happen when you're a homeowner. When you're a renter, you don't need all that money. You just need enough money to pay the rent because the landlord has to take care of all that stuff. But when you own a house, it's not just about the mortgage payments. There's all sorts of things that can come up. There's a reason that a lot of people refer to their house as a money pit. And so when you require people to put a big down payment, you are lending money to people who have proven that they're able to save money. But the idea now that people can buy a home for just 5% down, this is very risky for the lender. There's a much higher chance that the borrower walks from the mortgage and mails in his keys instead of a mortgage payment. And there's a good chance that if something major goes wrong, the borrower doesn't have the money to fix it. And so now he has even less incentive to pay the mortgage. Of course, the main reason that down payments have come down from 20% to 5% is because Americans no longer have the ability to save 20% of the price of a house, especially since houses are so expensive. But it's not just the cost of houses that have gone up. The cost of everything has gone up. The cost of living has risen much faster than people's wages. So real incomes have been falling, and therefore the ability of the average American to save has also been falling. People are living paycheck to paycheck. And so if you're living paycheck to paycheck, how can you possibly save up enough money to put 20% down on a house? And so mortgage standards have been lowered and lowered and lowered to enable people to overpay for homes and to buy houses that they can't afford. Ultimately, what is going to have to happen in the housing market is we're going to have to return to 20% down payments. And the only reason that mortgage lenders have been able to get away with 5% down payments is because the government still insures those loans. These loans are insured by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And so the lenders really don't give a damn whether the borrower repays or not because the government has co-signed every mortgage. That's another reason why we need to get the government out of the housing market so that we can have prudent lending standards return to the housing market. People who can't afford to save up a 20% down payment have no business buying a home.
They should be renting. You need to rent homes until you're in a position where you can actually afford to buy one. It's only because of these government-guaranteed mortgages that people can overpay for houses. The same thing for college. It's because of government-guaranteed student loans and now government-issued student loans that allow people to overpay for a college degree. Remember, back in 2008, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac went bankrupt. Now they're still alive. They're no longer the public companies, really. They're owned by the government directly, but they're still doing the damage. They're creating all the moral hazard for both the lender and the borrower. This is why we need a free market in housing. We got to get government out of housing, just like we got to get government out of education, just like we got to get government out of healthcare. Everywhere the government gets in and then pushes the free market out, problems arise. And those problems would turn into a complete crisis if the Federal Reserve actually followed through and raised interest rates high enough to bring inflation back down to 2%. But let me get back to the point I was trying to make on costs. So if you put 5% down on a $340,000 mortgage and borrowed the other 95%, at 3.1%, your monthly mortgage payments were $1,379.26. Today, buying the same house, for 440000 the 30% appreciation, with a 6.1% mortgage after the 21500 down payment. Still, very small down payment, bigger than the 17000 from two years ago. But the real impact is on the monthly mortgage payments because at 6.1%, that larger mortgage costs $2,536.09 per month. That is an 84% increase in two years. 42% a year. Think about that. That is a massive increase in housing costs. Compare that to the official increase in shelter costs in the CPI, because we just got the year-over-year -year number for August. It was 6.2%. That's it. 42% in reality, but 6.2% in the CPI fantasy. If you go back another year, it was 2.8% in 2021. So over the past two years, while the cost of buying the medium home has increased by 84%, according to the CPI, the cost of shelter has only increased by 9%. Can you imagine what the CPI would be if they used actual housing cost instead of this ridiculous owners of corporate rent? Inflation would be well into the double digits. It would be by far worse than anything experienced during any year of the 1970s or the 1980s. And of course, the real cost of home ownership is not just these monthly payments for the mortgage. What about maintenance costs? They've gone through the roof. What about insurance costs? They've gone through the roof. Everything about home ownership has gone through the roof. And if mortgage rates go much higher, the roof is gonna collapse on the housing market because nobody is gonna be able to afford to buy a new home. And if nobody could afford to buy a new home, then all of the companies building new homes are going to stop building them. And that means all of the jobs associated with home building, they're going to go away too. Most Americans of home buying age today couldn't even conceive of the type of mortgage interest rates that people were paying back in the 1980s. The actual high in 1981 for a 30-year fixed rate mortgage was 16.6%. Could you imagine what would happen to the housing market if Americans had to borrow money at that rate? In fact, I put in the calculations that I used earlier for buying the $440,000 home 
only instead of with the current 6.1 mortgage rate, I used a 16.6. And by the way, I had to use a different mortgage calculator because the one I was using wouldn't allow me to put a rate above 9.9%. Even the calculator couldn't conceive of double digit mortgage rates. So I had to look around online and I finally found one that allowed me to enter a higher mortgage rate. So the payment at 16.6%, and that assumes that the house price doesn't go up at all. It stays where it is. That would increase the monthly payment to $5,823.76. Now that's probably more money than the average person makes in a year. And that's before taxes. So there's no way they could afford to buy that house, but that's a 130% increase in the monthly payments over where they are right now. And it's a 320% increase over what you would have paid to buy that same house back in 2020. Now, it's very unlikely that the Fed is actually going to force mortgage rates all the way up to 16.6%, if for no other reason than that nobody could afford to buy a home at that rate, which is another reason why the Fed is not going to succeed in bringing the inflation rate back down to 2%, because it will not do whatever it takes. But I think 8% mortgage rates are practically a lock just based on the rate hikes that the Fed has planned for the rest of the year, as well as the quantitative tightening program that is going on right now, where the Federal Reserve is selling mortgage-backed securities into the market. And the act of doing that is pushing up mortgage rates. And so the spread between mortgage rates and treasuries is going to continue to rise. But I want to finish up today's podcast by correcting another mistake I made in the podcast I recorded a week ago, the one that's titled ECB's inflation fight may knock out the dollar. And in fact, I meant to correct this mistake on my last podcast, but totally forgot. The reason I found out about the mistake is because a lot of people called me out on that mistake in the comments to my podcast, which is another reason that people should leave comments because I do tend to glance at them. Now, I can't read all of them. And in fact, what I suggest is that you keep your comments short and sweet because when I see these really long comments, those I never read because I don't have the time to read those. So you have to be cognizant of my time and get to the point. So the shorter the comment, the more likely it is that I'm going to read it. And then every once in a while, I reply to the comments. But the mistake that I made had to do with the plan in the United Kingdom to put a cap on the cost of heating oil and electricity. And I misunderstood what they were going to do. And so it's not nearly as harebrained an idea as I thought. Now, it's still a bad idea and it's still going to backfire. It's just not as bad as what I assumed based on what I read. And what I read was that they were going to cap bills at 2,500 pounds per year. And so I thought, well, that's a complete disaster because that's a massive incentive to just use as much energy as possible. Because once your bill hits $2,500 a year, whatever you use is free. Well, fortunately for the British, I got that wrong. And so the British politicians are not quite as dumb as I thought. But again, I'm not going to let them off the hook because it's still a bad idea. They are capping price but they're not capping the bills. But the way they explained it was very confusing. In fact, I'm not the only one that jumped to the wrong conclusion. A lot of Brits were under the impression that there was going to be a cap on what their bills were. No, there's going to be a cap on the price, not the bill. So the more you use, the more you'll pay. But it's still going to backfire in that 
the bill will artificially reduce prices below where they would be in a free market, which will mean demand will be higher because people will have a lower incentive to conserve and try to find ways to cut back on their usage. And there's going to be excess demand over what the free market would have naturally produced. And so given the fact that we know supplies are short, what the government is doing will ultimately replace the rationing that would take place in the market for government rationing, only there's going to have to be an even greater ration because there's going to be an even bigger supply deficit because the government is short-circuiting the circuit breakers that would have naturally resulted from the market being able to set the price of heating oil and electricity. Because when supplies are scarce, you want prices to go up because that's how you get less demand. And also when you have high prices, producers will deliver more supply. But when you cap prices at a level that is below the free market, you do two things that damage the economy. One, you don't get as big a reduction in demand because prices are lower than they should be, but you also don't get as big an increase in supply because prices are not as high as they should be. So this energy shortage gets worse, and so ultimately prices have to rise even more as a result of the controls than they would have risen absent those controls. And because you have government rationing instead of the market, you end up with power failures, blackouts. And so everybody in Britain is going to suffer as a result of these politicians that are supposedly helping out. It's just that they're not going to suffer as much as I originally thought. And by the way, whenever you catch me in a mistake, always call me out on it. I'm not perfect. I get stuff wrong. But I always admit if I get something wrong and I try to correct it at my earliest convenience.